Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number 14. I am your host, Stephen Oki. But today, for this week's podcast, we actually have a guest host. This episode features Dr. Stuart Squires, an assistant professor of theology at Brescia University, talking with Daily Theology's own Andy Starin of Wheeling Jesuit University. Stu, Andy, and I all went to the University of Chicago Divinity School together way back when, and then Stu and Andy did their PhDs together at Catholic University. So they have a great rapport. It makes for a great conversation. In this episode, you'll hear them talk about the role of theology in the university, how being a family man has made Andy a much better teacher. And they talk a bit about Cardinal Ratzinger's document, Donum Veritatis, on the ecclesial vocation of the theologian, and what they make of some, some key pieces of that. One, one of the things to look out for throughout the episode that I was particularly struck by is Andy talking a bit about the metaphor of how teaching theology, how teaching is sometimes described as planting seeds, but Andy talks about how one of the things he's trying to do is help students to have better soil. And I, I find that really striking. So I hope you enjoy that as well. As a bit of an announcement for our listeners, the podcast is actually going to go on hiatus after episode 16. So this episode, two more episodes, then we're going to go on a bit of a break. I've got the American Academy of Religion Conference coming up. I've got finals and Christmas and the start of a new the spring semester. So we will be back in late January, early February with a host of new episodes and great conversations with great theologians. But we will be going on a little bit of a break, so just be prepared for that. Uh, but don't you worry. Season two will be even better than season one. Uh, as always, if you like the if you like the podcast, please let us know on the blog or leave us a review on iTunes. And thank you so very much for listening. Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast. My name is Dr. Stuart Squires. I'm a professor of theology at Brescia University. I'm honored to be the guest host of this episode. I'd first like to thank uh, Daily Theology for giving me this opportunity. In particular, I'd like to thank Dr. Steve Oki of St. Leo University. Today I'm joined by Dr. Andy Starin. Dr. Starin is an assistant professor of theology at Wheeling Jesuit University in Wheeling, West Virginia. He is also a contributor to the Daily Theology blog, and so you can read some of his work here. First of all, thank you very much for joining me today, Andy. It's my pleasure. Uh, I want to talk uh, today about uh, your vocation as a theologian and break our conversation really into two parts. The first part sort of talk about your formation as a theologian and then how you live out that vocation as a theologian. And then the second half, I'd like to uh, offer some quotes from Donum Veritatis, which you know uh, was written by the CDF. And uh, at the time in 1990, the uh, prefect was Joseph Ratzinger. And it's a short document that can be found online, of course. And it talks about how Ratzinger, the CDF, the church thinks about the vocation of the theologian. And have you to respond to some of these quotes? How do these quotes, how, how do you live out some of these things that, that Ratzinger is talking about? Or maybe there's a disconnect there. So I'd have you respond to some of these, uh, these quotations. But first, before we even talk about your vocation as a theologian, let's take a step back and go to your formation, not as a theologian, but just as a Catholic growing up in Catholic schools. I remember when you and I were starting at CUA, and I guess I should say for, for full disclosure, you and I went to the University of Chicago at the same time for a master's degree and then the Catholic University of America for our PhDs at the same time. And we commenced on the same day and our last names start with S, so we sat so right we next, sat to, next each to each other. next to each other, yes. 
But back up before that, so tell us about your uh, Catholic experience growing up. I remember in that that first semester at CUA, we had a class with uh, Father Joseph Kamanchak, the great scholar of the Second Vatican Council. I don't know if you remember this. And on the first day of class, he he asked everybody to write down on a piece of paper information about us. There's about 20 students in order to get to know us better. And he said, in particular, I want you to tell me about your Catholic education growing up. So in the second class, he came back after having read this, and he said, everybody in here had some sort of Catholic education, but two of you in particular mentioned specifically it was a Jesuit formation growing up. <laughs> and as soon as he said that, you and our mutual friend, friend Mark Rugani looked at each other and started laughing because you knew that both of you had done that. And I'm not sure how you knew that, but you knew that some way. So I bring that story up because not only is it obviously important to you that you had a Catholic education growing up, but in particular a Jesuit formation. So talk about K through 12, Catholic education in general, but specifically that Jesuit flavor. Oh, okay. Do you remember that story? Uh, now that you mention it, I do. <laughs> I, I didn't know where you were going with it at first, but uh, I do remember that moment. Well, I did not go to Catholic school until ninth grade. Okay. Uh, I went to public school for grade school and middle school. And then, so the the Catholic side of it came through PSR classes. Um, I went to weekly class at my parish where we learned that Jesus loved us. And it was, you know, it was a good program. I remember one teacher in particular who I really appreciated, a guy by the name of Chuck Abbey. And then the rest of it was at home. Uh, you know, I, I, my, my parents both were, were, are Catholic and they went to Catholic schools growing up. And so we learned prayers and we talked about Jesus and we watched movies about Jesus during the, during Lent. And we, what else? I, you know, I think very significant actually looking back on it. I didn't know this at the time, but looking back on it, uh, while I was in grade school, my mom read to me the entire Narnian Chronicles. And mm -hmm. I think... That was an early, let's say, spark to my imagination. Mm -hmm. But when I do you remember what in particular? The idea that uh, the the importance of narrative and how narrative invites us into uh, a reality that facts don't always accomplish. Mm -hmm. the, the fact that I was able to think about things like sacrifice and mercy and grace. And I didn't, of course, you know, those weren't the words I would have used sure. at the time, but, but I started thinking about those ideas as important very early on because of those books. And, and so as, as I think later on, when I was introduced to the, the concepts theologically, they resonated with me in a way that was both nostalgic and hopeful. Mm. Uh, so, and then in eighth grade, we were looking into high schools for me. Uh, we did not think that the the area public high school was the best fit for me so we were looking at other schools and it came down to a benedictine high school in cleveland where i grew up in and saint ignatius the jesuit school in cleveland uh, both all boys and i ended up picking ignatius because I, I visited for the day and the teachers there included me in class that was a big hmm. i know it struck me as very welcoming very hospitable uh, they were calling on me. They were expecting answers from me. Uh, yeah, that didn't scare you. Like it wasn't like deer in the headlights. No, like, oh because gosh, because when stuff. I didn't know an answer, the the teachers were always spinning it like, 
Well, his his half answer was better than the rest of you guys Ooh. who, you know, there, there was a lot oh, of that man. stuff. Uh, Did you have any friends after you ended up going? Well, I, I didn't know any of the guys who I was. They were a year older <laughs> right, than me. Right, right, um, right. No, it was it, so it was a good experience to yeah. be at Ignatius. So that's where I got my first strong kind of in, intentional Catholic sure. education from school. You know, we had theology classes every semester we were there. Morality. I remember taking classes on on theology and art and world religions and a class on Jesus and a class that was created by um, Jim Skrull, who just died this past year, a great, great man and, and teacher at Ignatius called Christian Manhood. So it was, that was part of, of the curriculum. And then, of course, the, the retreat program that we participated in, Ignatius had a, uh, we were on retreat every year. A wide variety of choices. I did a retreat that was a kind of a high ropes course a retreat. I, of course, did Kairos uh, my senior year. So there was a, a series of, it was a very um, integrated hmm. education. So you did a lot of things. Now, looking back on those, yeah. how did those things, retreats, programs, shape you? You know, I, I think about several things that various teachers said over the time. I remember, for instance... Michael Pennock, Doc Pennock, who died a couple of years ago too, teaching me in my Jesus class. And we were talking about Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ. Mm-hmm. He was telling the story about how when he first saw he saw it because he was a theology teacher and thought, you know, amidst all the protests and sure. and um, hoopla around that movie that he needed to see it in order to know what it was about. And so he saw it and he walked out and he said, you know what, I found the movie insulting. And we all kind of expected that. And he said, but let me tell you why. Mm-hmm. For you know, The movie is about Jesus' temptation to marry Mary Magdalene and kind of go about, go about a normal life and, and avoid this kind of role as, as Messiah. And a lot of people found the fact that Jesus would have you know, sexual desire or want to be a normal guy. Like Those things were what people found offensive. Mm-hmm. But Doc Pennock said, I found it offensive that I found Jesus to be a boring character. Mm-hmm. That they took... He said, this man who I devoted my life to and turned him into kind of a, a wooden figure. And that I remember that moment sitting there in class. I remember exactly where I was sitting. And he said, so this class is going to be basically about trying to find out who this guy really was and mm-hmm. to, in a sense, fall in love with him. But that idea that there's, that there's a way in which religion and, and faith, and, and specifically the Catholic faith, can be introduced that's boring. And the fact that it, the boring way might be the way that a movie presents it, which for you know high school mind just blew my mind that the movie would be boring, <laughs> but class would be exciting. Right. Um, but but that moment struck me. So that kind of that excitement and to to see something real. Uh, so so there were a lot of individual moments like that. I remember even at that point, I had no desire to be a a teacher at, at, when I was in high school. But I think about the way that my teachers excited me to learn mm-hmm. a couple of the jesuits bernard Stryker. he was the toughest grammar teacher i've ever had but <laughs> you know damn it i know my grammar now uh, and uh larry ober another jesuit uh, who just made education exciting so, so i think a lot of it was seeing the ignatian and jesuit spirituality lived out in a in a regular daily way. So even the teachers who were not theology teachers or even the folks who weren't campus ministers, you know, they would go on the retreats too. 
these these teachers from other departments in the school would go on the retreats. They would be, you know, cantors at mass. They would they would be participating in the life of the school, the spiritual life of the school. And so that way in which religion was embraced, the, the Catholic faith was embraced in all ways, in all different manners of people's lives, not not having to see that, oh, church is just for Sunday and for theology classes, but then to see it embraced across the board, even, and this is, you know, even to see, to walk on that campus now, it's changed since I was there, but to see the statues, to see the quotes emblazoned, uh, right now there's a quote kind of in stone right in the middle of campus by the then president, uh, Robert Welsh. He's, he's no longer president of the school, but he said, you know, the point of a Jesuit or Ignatius education is to give our students the tools to answer the question, what does Jesus want from me? And, and I think that that, that that was the goal of the school was clear. And that stuck with me. At the time, of course, you didn't know that these were living these these professors were living out in Ignatian spirituality. At what point did you say, "Oh my gosh, I now see what they were doing and how they were doing it, and it's Ignatius and Ignatian, and I can put a vocabulary to this life." Was that years later, or was that when was I, it? You know, if 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 someone would have asked me, I would have said, "Yes, this is definitely Ignatian and Jesuit," but I wouldn't have had the the understanding of what that meant. Sure, it was it was. Later in college, I think that that okay. stuff began to make sense. Was it a, an aha moment, or was it no, like sort of just over time? Well, it was. You know, as I graduated from Ignatius and looked into colleges, I ended up just applying to a handful because I was intending to study international relations. Mm -hmm. um, I really liked my government class senior year. I was partially involved with some of the like speech and debate stuff dealing with international relations. I didn't ever throw my heart into it, hmm. but I was t technically on the team and did compete a few times. You know, I had a subscription to The Economist, which I did not, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I, I would read some articles, and, and so I was looking at international relations programs, and two of the four schools I applied to uh, were Jesuit, and the one I chose, Georgetown University in, in D.C., uh, I I think I was always leaning towards Georgetown because it was Jesuit. It felt <laughs> there was something about it that felt comfortable because I could say I, I kind of understand the the language of a place like this. But it kept it kept it felt comfortable to you before you even got to campus, or like once you got once to, I campus, got to campus, you said, "Oh, yeah. this feels familiar." Yeah, even you know the the, the main building at, at Saint Ignatius is a you know nineteenth late nineteenth century neo gothic building and and the main building on georgetown's campus is like a, is a flemish gothic mm -hmm. um again kind of late 19th century construction uh so even seeing the architecture mm -hmm. resonated with me and then I, I remember the moment i decided to go to georgetown i was sitting in uh the main lecture hall gaston hall um one of the professors there was giving his spiel for why we should go to georgetown i looked up and gaston hall has the crests of the Jesuit universities and high schools that were in existence at the time that the, the hall was built. And I looked up and I was looking around and I saw St. Ignatius High School, the crest right there. And I thought, all right, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm not one, a big one for signs, but why not? <laughs> uh, so I ended up going to Georgetown for, and largely because of its, its international relations program. 
And when you went there, you were an international relations major for a little while, but then uh, changed to theology. Yes. Uh, what made you change your theo- your major to theology? God? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> working the, through. Yeah, working through. Um, so I, I did enjoy the, the international relations program. Uh, I, was, I was intending to study international security. I was going to focus on Africa. I took a couple courses along those way along the, those lines. I struggled with economics, but that's okay. But so I took my first theology class my first semester, and it was Georgetown's basic intro class with uh, Elizabeth McCune. It was an amazing class, but um, it made me want to take more theology classes immediately. Mm-hmm. But at that point, I wasn't quite thinking of transferring from the uh, School of Foreign Service to the College of Arts and Sciences to to major in theology. My spring semester, freshman year, along with my foreign language and another econ class, God have mercy on me, um, I took three other courses ostensibly to get core requirements out of the way, but they ended up becoming the the mechanism of, of my, my conversion. It was The first one was my second theology class, which would have been it for Georgetown's requirement. It was a class on um, Pierre Terre de Chardin and evolution with uh, Father Tom King. And then I took a government course, Elements of Political Theory, which was, again, the required government class, but I took that with Father Jim Shaw. And then I was supposed to take an English class, didn't wasn't feeling it, was talking to a buddy of mine who really liked his philosophy course, so I signed up for a philosophy course with uh, Frank Ambrosio called Intro to Catholic Studies. Uh, and so the three of those courses really excited me. And, and all, those three professors are all heavy hitters in very different ways, very mm-hmm. different methodologies, very different approaches, very different um, ways of proceeding. Uh, but they each affected me in, in, in different ways. And at the end of that semester, I was looking ahead to schedule my classes. And the School of Foreign Service has a very structured curriculum. And I did not find myself excited about taking the courses that I was going to have to take. And I wanted to take more theology classes. And the same buddy of mine who recommended I take Frank Ambrosio's class was sitting on my bed saying, well, I'm done with all my requirements. I can take anything I want. <laughs> And he was talking about the theology classes he was planning on taking, and I felt that that's where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be taking theology classes, and I, I said that to him. He said, well, why don't you just transfer and major in theology? And I started coming up with a bunch of excuses that all fell short as I was... I said, well, I can't because I'm, I'm majoring in international security. You know, the, 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 the reasons I, I had uh, didn't make a whole lot of sense, except I don't know what I would do with it. Mm-hmm had a very clear picture of what I wanted to do with international security, but no real picture of what I wanted to do with theology. But after uh, talking to some campus ministers on campus and thinking about it and praying about it, I uh, decided to transfer. I never regretted it from that point on. Good. You decided to change your major to theology, and as you just said, you weren't quite sure what you were going to do with that. Uh, Did you quickly figure out that you wanted to become a professor and get a PhD and do the grad school (laughs) thing? Or were you thinking, all right, I'll do the theology thing, I'll get my degree, and then I'll go and do something? I did not have the the graduate route in mind. I used to tell people, at least immediately, I would tell people I was planning on going to law school because that seemed to quiet down (laughs) uh, 
uh, criticism. Sure. Um, you know, people don't know what to say to you when you say, I, I study theology. They didn't say, are you going to be a priest? I, no, I, I got that. Yeah. And um, I don't think the, the woman I was dating at the time appreciated that. <laughs> but no, uh, I, I would tell people I was going to law school usually. And they would say, oh, because of, you know, the, the moral stuff. And I would nod my head and that would end the conversation. I, so it took me a little bit of time to zero in. And sophomore year, I didn't—I don't think I thought much about it. I know, it, though, what started me thinking about really continuing to study theology was I took a class with uh, Teresa Sanders on systematic theology, and we read a lot of Rahner. And I found in Rahner a, a mind who was also deeply in love with God. Mm-hmm. And I, I found myself drawn to that that way of thinking about God that's that's not an intellectual exercise, but is meant to bring people closer to God. You know, not certainly not prayer, not a spirit uh, writing that was that was expressly spiritual, but but the theology that was meant to kind of transform minds to be more open to grace, mm-hmm. to seeing grace. Um, so I took that class with with Teresa Sanders and. At that point, I really I fell in love with theology in a new way, mm-hmm. and wanted so that next summer I remember I read a lot of kind of theology on my own, and and then it wasn't until junior year that I decided to start looking at graduate school. I, um, in particular, I took a class with uh, Vince Miller, and it was the it was a class on theological method, and we spent a lot of time talking about you know, well method, but but I I. You know, method is is what professionals pay attention to that amateurs don't. Uh, and, and so looking at that, I started getting a, an appreciation for, in a sense, what's different about studying theology as an undergrad and then what it would look like to continue to study it, to focus on what types of questions you focus on in graduate school. And so it was, it was junior year that I decided to uh, continue and kind of had a real sense that this is who I want. These people, these professors, uh, I said Vince Miller, Teresa Sanders, Julia Lamb, uh, Jim Walsh, uh, Jesuit who just who just died two days ago, Tom King, Frank Ambrosio. Uh, th- these are the people I, I want to be like. These people I want to mm-hmm. do for future students what I saw these people doing for me and for all my friends who were majors, and and so that's what got me looking towards the next step. So the next step, as I said, I mentioned earlier, uh, University of Chicago, secular school, then PhD, Catholic University of America, uh, started by Pope Leo XIII in uh, the end of the 19th century. So one secular school, one Catholic school, but uh, both obviously are not Jesuit schools. So sticking with this Jesuit theme for a minute, um, obviously the schools are different. Obviously the secular school is going to be different than the Catholic school. But look, having gone to the two later schools... And then reflecting back on your experience at Georgetown, how do those, especially Seaway, which was still a Catholic school, uh, the experiences that are different from your undergraduate experience because those were not Jesuit schools? You could certainly say that the things I'm about to say about the Jesuits can be found in other religious orders and are found largely in the Catholic Church in general. And, but, but the Jesuits tend to focus on, on particular aspects of their faith, aspects of the faith. And I think one of the key components that stuck with me was this this push or this invitation to look for God in all things. And that's a generically Ignatian phrase. Mm-hmm. 
but I didn't quite realize the, the way that that had kind of gotten into my blood at Georgetown until I was finding the ways in which I felt uncomfortable both at the University of Chicago and at Catholic University. And it was in a sense for the same reason, but coming at it from different, from completely opposite roads. So at, at Chicago, I was struggling with what I felt was a lack of expressly theological questions. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of questions on religion and religious studies, which are certainly important. And our, our degree from Chicago is a, is a master's in religion. So it's, it wasn't an expressly theological program, but I found that the questions uh, had to do with human history and, and the human desire for God and, and the like, and, and the, the, the larger questions about the activity of God and how we might come to find, actually find and encounter God, were, were less present. And where I found those questions to be most explicitly asked at Divinity School were with the non-theological faculty, the, the, the professors who were not part of the, the theology area. Mm. So um, in particular, Jean-Luc Marion and Jean Elstein. And I think David Tracy was in there too, but he was on his way towards retirement sure. at that point. So I, I, I felt out of place there because I kept wanting to ask about God. Mm -hmm. And although those professors gave me a lot of personal support to ask those questions, the community wasn't asking those questions. And then at CUA, I, uh, the, the questions that a lot of my, my colleagues were asking were much more expressly ecclesial. Mm -hmm. uh, they had to do with the Catholic Church and Catholic history and Catholic politics and Catholic hierarchy. And, and again, my, my larger question had to do with how we find God in this world. How do we find God in our everyday life? How do we make sense of a, of a God who is present in all things? And how do we bring intelligibility to that? And again, I, the, the individual professors I had were very supportive of my questions. They wanted me to speak up more in class. And so, you know, so a big shout out to Bill Lowe and Thomas Shardle and Brian Johnstone in particular. But I didn't feel that the, the larger questions at the university were quite what I wanted to ask. But then again, again, the, the faculty was supportive enough that when I wanted to get towards my, my dissertation and I proposed something that was a little bit out of the box for, for typical CUA theology dissertations, I had a lot of support from Brian Johnson, my director, Tarmo Toom, and um, Chad Pecknold, too. Talk a little bit now as your formation as a theologian. You kind of hinted at the beginnings of this, sort of at the end of your Georgetown career. You took a systematic theology class and you read Rahner. So transitioning away from just sort of a general Catholic education and then sort of a, a, an undergraduate, undergraduate education. But now tell us about your formation as a theologian at Georgetown, at U of C, and then at CUA. This idea of, okay, now I'm going to become a theologian. What does that mean? I've got the questions that I want to ask, but these schools are sort of asking yeah. different questions. So talk about the formation, not just as a Catholic and as an educated Catholic, but formation as a theologian. I guess I'll begin there with something Tom King said to me at Georgetown. I asked him about his his continued study of Teilhard de Chardin and Teilhard's you know the the trouble he got into throughout his life with with Catholic leadership and and how he made sense of that himself and he mentioned two things to me one he said that any organization if it's to grow if it's to live has to, well if it's to live it has to grow it has to 
deal with the changes in the world around it and that somebody has to be kind of on the cutting edge of that process and that sometimes there might be missteps and the like but um, somebody has to be there now i don't see myself really on a, as doing cutting edge work but but he but but tom king spoke ex explicitly about Teard's courage mm -hmm. now Teard, i don't understand the guy um <laughs> i am neither a mystic nor a, a scientist and so his his um bringing those two together just kind of doesn't quite make sense to me but but that idea of courage does and the conviction again this i think this is a um something emphasized in in at jesuit schools and through ignatian spirituality but the conviction that nothing that is true is outside the the realm of responsible engagement for theology so anything that we can say that is true about human experience anything that we can say that's true about human life is relevant to theology and and i think that struck a, a deep chord with me and, and continues to do so the other I think part of my theological formation that we haven't mentioned yet is between Georgetown and starting at Chicago, I did a year of postgraduate volunteer work through the program Amate House through the Archdiocese of Chicago, where I worked as a chaplain at a hospital within kind of one of the more, let's say, um, violent or close to one of some of the more violent neighborhoods in Chicago. So there's a lot of gang violence that I saw come through the hospital. And so as, as a chaplain, I was comforting certainly the sick, but a lot of my job fell, a lot of my work was, was talking to families after loved ones died, you know, the day that they would be at the hospital and, you know, escorting families to uh, see the body of, of their loved ones. And, um, and I remember something coming out of that experience too, is, you know, a lot of the questions that people would ask me at that point were some version of how can God allow something like this to mm -hmm. happen? And I didn't have any good answers. Uh, and I don't know if many of us do. <laughs> uh, but, but one of the things that struck me there too was that I wanted to keep these people in mind as I did my theology. And not that every essay, every um, speculative sentence I wrote about theology would have to be directly applicable to these situations. This is a place for technical vocabulary and language but I wanted to keep those people in mind mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to anything that I said theologically needed to be relevant to people who were actually suffering or, or living their lives in 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 this mystery of, of God and so I, both of those things made me very open to I guess seeing God in, mm -hmm. in all things can you give me examples of how those two thoughts from Father King and this experience mm -hmm. as you were doing the sort of technical graduate stuff, how you maybe would pause and stop and say, okay, I, I need to bring in these these memories. Yeah. Can you give us some examples of how that informed you? Uh, I hope it kept me honest when I, I ended up at Chicago. I ended up doing a lot of work on evil and suffering. And I hope it kept me honest when what, I would what does do that, that mean? work. There's a... a there's a tendency, I think, to want to either give God a, a quick and to, to resort to cheap grace to say, well, God has a plan for you here and you just have to have faith and to, to have a quick and easy answer when it came to to suffering or to see it as so pervasive and so kind of foundational to human life that. 
God could not be present. I, I, I see kind of errors going in both directions. And to try to be able to speak honestly about suffering in a way that did not belittle the experiences of people who do suffer, but to also speak about the possibility of grace and the possibility of, of remaining faithful, hopeful, and loving within these situations. And because I'd seen people do that too. And I wanted to be able to speak truthfully about faith, hope, and love. Ultimately, love, my dissertation focuses a lot on love, in, in a way that I didn't realize this till later, but in a sense that was able to speak phenomenologically to the experience that people were having, experiences that people were having about these, these the, the brokenness, the sinfulness, the suffering, but also the, the possibility of grace within those moments. So that's what I hope it did for mm -hmm. me. Um, I don't know if it did. <laughs> I, 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 you know, we live in hope, right? Sure. So you finish your PhD, and where do you end up? But at a Jesuit university yes. here, Wheeling of uh, Jesuit in West Virginia. So tell us about teaching at Wheeling Jesuit. Tell us about the student population, the culture here, their interest in theology, the particular challenges you face. Maybe especially in contrast with teaching at Georgetown. You taught at Georgetown for a couple of years as an adjunct. So talk about, okay, you've been, you, you have been formed and are continuing to be formed, and now you're forming young men and women. Tell us about your experience here. I, you know, the, the fact that it's a Jesuit school, I, all my friends remind me constantly that throughout my graduate studies, I would just say, I just want to be at one of the 28 <laughs> Jesuit schools. That's what, that's the job that I want someday. And um, the fact that I had that opportunity, uh, we, I only half jokingly say was uh, Tom King's first miracle because he died in, in 09, was getting me a job at a, at a Jesuit school closest to the Pit city of Pittsburgh where he grew up. So mm -hmm. there's that. But uh, I've been very fortunate here at Wheeling Jesuit. The university itself is the youngest of the 28 Jesuit schools in the United States. And it was founded with a explicit mission of serving the population of Appalachia, um, a population that doesn't receive a whole lot of attention kind of on the national media. The, the poverty that, that uh, Appalachia experiences is oftentimes mocked by the, the population at large. So kind of the, the primarily white rural poverty in the, in the region. And to, so the university itself is devoted to those students, to being a presence here. There's a lot of work that the university does for justice for the region. We're involved in a lot of the discussions with the, the, the mining that's going on, fracking, coal mining. There's a lot of public forums along those, kind of on those topics. And most of our students are from this region, a large percentage of them. We have people from all over the country and actually from many different countries, but the vast majority of our students are from Appalachia or, or close to it. My, my job here in the department is, is systematic theology, so I regularly teach the Intro to Catholicism class and teach classes on Jesus and God, and I taught a Theology of Love course and a couple classes on religion and literature. Um, I have a lot of support and freedom within my department to to teach things that I think would resonate deeply with my students. And the, the student body, as far as different from Georgetown, 
there's there are ways in which we are less diverse and there are ways in which we are more diverse i'd say there's there's a wider diversity of academic ability at, at wheeling jesuit it's not as exclusive of a school because again we we tend to focus on a, a region rather than a, um uh, expressly uh, uh, I don't know, say about <laughs> uh, you know i there are certainly brilliant students at both schools but the 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 range of student ability is much wider here at, at Wheeling Jesuit than at Georgetown talk about the students what are their interests in theology do you have a lot of students who come in and they sort of sit in the back and they're like oh i'm just taking this cuz i have to and then yes. they end up, <laughs> yes but then they end up at the end they're like oh the doctor Staring, this was the best class i've ever had so how, how do they how do they uh, receive what you do uh we have a let's call it a two and a half credit uh, course theology requirement. They have to take two theology courses, plus they have to take a third ethics course, either in theology or philosophy. And I don't teach that class. So I, I usually get my students at the intro level or the second level course. And a lot of them are skeptical at best about the the importance of, of taking a theology course. Or I, I teach this intro to Catholicism, so I get a lot of students who come from Catholic schools and they say, well, I took, you know, Catholic theology classes for four years in high school. What can I expect to learn that's more on top of that? And I try to, I do try to convert them into caring. Mm -hmm. um, the, yeah, I try to in, encourage them and invite them to ask questions about where they get the sources of ultimate meaning and value in their life. And what the consequences of those choices are. Uh, you know, my intro course is, I, I tend to teach it as kind of an intro to the Catholic imagination. So we spend a lot of time trying to understand sacramentality, trying to understand the way in which we could presume to say that God is present, mediated by the world, through the world. Because I think, you know, as much as I want to talk about those seven sacraments and get them answering questions on all seven, and as much as I want to talk about the Catholic Church as a, as a sacrament of God, and as much as I want to, I'd like to talk about those questions, I found, and this isn't just true here, this was true, this is true here, it was true at Georgetown, and it was true at the Catholic University of America when I taught there, that I don't think our students coming into college have a religious imagination. Even the ones who are well-versed in Catholic stuff and speak a Catholic vocabulary still have a hard time seeing the world as po possibly charged with the grandeur of God mm -hmm. and understanding what that means to the types of choices that they make. We can you know, dig for reasons for that. We could credit secularism writ bold <laughs> if we want or whatever we want to, to, to credit or blame for that. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a very complicated question. But I think the fact of the matter is our students don't typically think about the world in a religious manner. And I, I find that teaching them facts about the church, about Catholicism, about Catholic theology, about Catholic history, they, they can regurgitate things to me. But for it to actually make a difference for who they are, who they become, for for this, you know, one of their two theology classes for most of my students, for it to make a difference in how they live in the world as a graduate of, of Wheeling Jesuit, 
I think it needs to, I, I'm trying to plant or actually trying to give them better soil, mm-hmm. I think, for so that when they hear things elsewhere in the university, when they hear things when they're older, when they hear things from their their churches, that they it has there's better soil for those seeds to take root. That's a pretty grand ambition. Yeah. How do you go about doing that <laughs> in two semesters? I mean, uh, and sometimes it's only one, right? I mean, yeah, that's true. Sometimes they don't want to take me. Yeah. Again. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, obviously the Socratic dialogue, you read text, but yeah. is there something special that you feel works or that you've done that so by the end of that semester they're like, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. We read a lot of things that probably don't find their way into a lot of intro to Catholicism classes. We read some of the work of, of novelist uh, David Foster Wallace. My introduction to hermeneutics is, is some Annie Dillard work. We read, I mean, we certainly read little bits of people like Thomas Aquinas, spend some time with Dorothy Day. So the, the, the Catholic people probably are more common. I, I, I point out, we do some blogs, we read some blog posts. Uh, we spend a lot of time, though, on translating what the texts are saying to their lives on campus, to why they make the decisions that they do. And a lot of their writing assignments have to do with making sense of something significant from the text and then applying that to their lives directly. Um, I don't, I mean, that's not terribly unique on my part, but sure. but it's, it's what I have them doing from the get-go so that they realize that what they commit to, what they commit to is kind of foundational truths about their lives. As I, I, Wallace's commencement address from K- to Kenyon College in 2005, he talks about this a lot, but I think it was Von Balthazar who said, your, your highest or greatest freedom is the freedom to choose your highest good. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what I push to them. I want mm-hmm. them to be able to see this as, as in, um, an act of freedom on their part to commit to love something greater than themselves. And how the Catholic Church does that and how the Catholic Church sees every part about their lives, every part about what they do, their jobs, how they, how they hang out with their friends, the conversations they have in the, you know, in the dining hall, what they do in their dorms, how they party on Saturday night, you know, all of those things. Well, that's what, none of them are incidental to their relationship with God. Sure. And so that's one of the main themes that I, I push in, in my classes, and I try to get them to see that. Other than the general statements of, oh, this is different from what I had in high school, or, oh, I didn't realize this was going to be a good class, I like it at the end. What are the, what are the specific sort of nuggets that your students have given back to you to show, oh, this stuck with me, or, oh, I see what's going on here now? What are sort of the ways that you've seen your attempt to give them a richer soil work out? I'll tell you, one of the lines I got my first semester, and it's, it's given me a lot of, I don't know, hope. I actually have it written on a piece of paper in my office. It was in a final paper from one of my intro classes, and they were talking about grace and salvation amidst sin, which is the only place it ever plays out, right? Uh, And I don't remember actually much about this paper, but it ended with the line that there is no way to measure the amount of grace that can appear in our lives. And the, the whole context of the paper was God, it was it was a recognition a growing recognition that God is is present in all things mm-hmm. everywhere is always active and always inviting the student herself to to a deeper conversion 
And so I see my students growing to appreciate the decisions that they make. I've, I've heard from some of the coaches, buddies with, uh, for instance, the, the men's lacrosse coach, and he has told me that his students bring things up that I've said in class. My students bring things who are on his team, bring mm-hmm. things up in practice. Mm-hmm. Or when he asks them about what classes are kind of changing the way they view things, my class comes up in, 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 those, in those conversations. I have students who have gotten more involved with, with retreats as a result of, of taking the classes. I've gotten students who, I mean, some of my favorite students are the ones who come in as atheists and assuming that we're going to have a lot uh, of fights in the classroom. And I, typically the only fight I have with atheists is when, they, when their atheist arguments are poor. <laughs> and I try to make them better. Uh, I say, no, 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 stop reading you know, Dawkins. Here's some Nietzsche, and then we'll talk. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, and, and the, you know, the, the, the idea that the God that they claim not to believe in is a God that I don't believe in either. When they say, I can't oh, believe sure. in a God who does all these bad things in the world and say, well, yeah, neither do I. <laughs> so to have these students who, can't, let's say, the, the greatest though sign of what I see as success is to have students who came in skeptical mm-hmm. take my classes again and do much more engaged work the second time around. I, I think that's, that's a very uh, gratifying sign. As I mentioned earlier, you're a part of uh, a contributor to the Daily Theology blog. Uh, how do you see your role with that blog as part of your vocation as a theologian? Yeah, I've thought about that. Uh, we we just actually discussed that a little bit at the uh, College Theology Society uh, meeting in Portland this past May. I guess it, it serves in a few different ways. The first is kind of personally, it has forced me to be more clear in my expression of theological ideas. I think if you, if one were to sit down and look at my blog posts in chronological order, they would get less complicated <laughs> and more accessible as, as they go on. And the, the way in which that's sharpened my thinking to kind of be focused on one point, not to be juggling a lot of different concepts at one time, which is my default way of thinking is to try to harmonize a lot of, at least on the surface, disparate ideas in, in strange ways. But writing for the, the blog has forced me to, to either avoid that or to take it much more slowly than I, than I typically would. So I think that's made me a better teacher. It's, it's made me a better lecturer. It's, it's enabled me to, to convey information to my students in a, in a more digestible way way for them. I think it's also given me a sense of, of um, public responsibility that when, when I see blog posts, whether I write them or whether other people who contribute write them, being used by churches, being used by other professors, being used by pastors and their homilies. When I start seeing things like that, I, I realize that this isn't just you know, a group of us throwing stuff into the into the ether of the internet, but but that people actually read them, and that more people read my posts than, for instance, have read my dissertation. <laughs> uh, that that there's a there's this responsibility again to to recognize that what I'm doing is is 
expanding my role as a teacher from my individual classroom and, and expanding that classroom to the, the larger public. When you started graduate school, you were a young single man, and over the course, by the time you commenced, you were a uh, married, uh, you're a husband with two kids and a third one on the way. Mm -hmm. Your third one was born the week you packed up and moved from Georgetown to Wheeling. Yes, the day before the movers. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Talk about how your your vocation as a theologian has changed or sharpened because because you became a husband and a father? So I write a lot about love. The experience of, of falling in love with, with my wife, and we just, just yesterday celebrated the 10-year anniversary of being engaged, has, I mean, it's, it's kind of a cliche to say, it's taught me a lot about loving, <laughs> right? But it has. And, and I think also the, the idea that having children as I wrote, actually, one of the Daily Theology blog posts, reoriented the the focus of my life in a way that, to to borrow from Augustine, you know, my love is my weight. My my weight is is now focused in a different direction than than it had been, and that having children has enabled me to I think being married and having kids is the one thing in my life more than anything else that has made it easier for me to be a good person, a better person, because I want to be a better person for these people. I want to um, care less about myself because of these people, and, and that my love for them has enabled me to do so. And I think that's made me a more loving professor as well. You know, my students who come in and ask me to change their grade at the end of the semester might disagree, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I've become convinced that I can't teach my students about the God of love unless I love them in some way. And it's, it's been, it's helped me when, when I'd rather be annoyed by them to be a little bit more compassionate, at least in my inner, it doesn't mean they're getting away with stuff, but sure. it means that I, I smile when I tell them that they're getting, that they're not getting away with stuff. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's made me care about them as people and care about them as, as how they are formed spiritually. So again, that tends to be the ultimate goal of my, my classes. That it's it's an intellectual class, but the, but the goal is not to learn the stuff as an end in itself, but to help them to fall in love with God a little bit better. Uh, your wife, whom we were just sort of talking about, is an alumna of Notre Dame, uh, which of course is an important institution in Catholic higher education. And as you know, there's sort of a, a controversy that's gone in the public discourse about the possibility of Notre Dame reducing their theology requirements. You certainly don't need to talk about Notre Dame specifically, but that, that, that whole issue going on at Notre Dame raises the larger question of what is the role of theology in a Catholic institution? It's funny. I, I usually present to my students the question of why is the church involved in education in general? I say theology makes sense, right, for the, for the church to be doing having theology classes, but why do we have bio? Why do we have political science? Why do we have literature? And that's part, part of my way of getting them to understand the, the, the goal of a, of a Catholic education is, is to form people to um, know and serve God a little bit uh, more effectively. Theology's job in that mix is to, I think, ask questions, is, is to try to make 
the questions about ultimate meaning in one's life intelligible, to give a vocabulary by which they can challenge, with the students can challenge themselves out of complacent kind of consumption and to see the possibility of an ultimate good that points dramatically beyond themselves, beyond their immediate communities, beyond even this time, and to encourage those types of questions. Not that other departments can't do that, and I hope that they do in some ways, but we do it explicitly. We're the ones who ask those questions <laughs> as course objectives. Uh, <laughs> And to have students who graduate without being able to ask what matters most to me, why does it matter, should this matter, um, and if perhaps it's uh, perhaps what matters to me isn't what should matter, how do I go about falling in love with something else? I, I think we do our students a disservice if they can't begin to ask those questions upon graduation. And we as, as a discipline do that most explicitly. I think that's a good moment to transition to a, sort of the second part of our conversation. As I said, I want to give you some quotations from Joseph Ratzinger, Donum Veritatis, and sort of have you respond to how you see this playing out in your life. So the first quote is about sort of the crisis moment we're living in. So it says, Theology has importance for the church in every age so that it can respond to the plan of God who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. In times of great spiritual and cultural change, theology is all the more important. Many people say that today we are currently living in a crisis moment. How do you see theology as speaking to the crisis of the 21st century? If you assume, if you agree with the assumption that there is a crisis. Sure, there's, a, there's always a crisis. I, I, I don't know. I, I have a hard time looking back at the history of, you know, the, the Christian church. And looking at moments, not seeing a, not and not seeing a moment of crisis. <laughs> That's true. Um, you know, I'm I'm greatly comforted when I read, for instance, Thomas Merton talking about his students in the 1940s at Bonaventure not doing their work, or <laughs> or Augustine, or Augustine go, when, going to Rome and then being yeah, and, horribly disappointed and, that and, their and, students were right, not better they, than the ones in Carthage. Yeah, they didn't pay much attention to what was going. They didn't care. <laughs> they either. didn't pay him. <laughs> yeah. So so I you know I look at that and I think you know we have certainly there are crises going on now. But are they worse than the collapse of the Roman Empire and right. how the church had to deal with that? Or the, you know, the, the early church's tension with the Roman Empire sure. or the attempt to navigate feudalism or the Crusades or the Reformation or, you know, I, I, I don't think we've had moments of, of peace. Sure. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, we're in crisis, but when have we not been? <laughs> uh, the Holy Spirit's gotten us through everything else, so I, I remain hopeful. but. The crisis now that I think we're facing is is part of what I referred to earlier is is we and I, again I'm not sure how unique this actually is but mm -hmm. we don't see the world in a religious manner. I do think that the heavy consumer culture of of late modernity, you know, certainly kind of post World War II consumer suburban culture has it is a profound challenge to people thinking about the world in a in a way that enables them to see the objects of the world of creation the natural creation but also what we've created ourselves as human beings and our relationships with other people and and with the natural world and with animals and 
and, and the like. I, I think we have a hard time seeing those in other ways than as commodities, seeing these things as commodities and, and trying to figure out how I can use this to better myself. Again, I don't, that, that seems like original sin to me. I don't, I don't think it's, it's profoundly new, <laughs> but, but the, the, the way in which stuff is accessible to us now, the throwaway culture that Pope Francis has been talking about, mm -hmm. I think promotes it in a way that had not been promoted in the past. And so th that type of, I think that's a profound challenge that we have. So theology, again, can make, can help it make sense to our students that they can live in a way that this God thing is actually real yeah. and, and, and has a relevance, not only a relevance, but the relevance to their lives. That they can, therefore, that it makes sense to act in faith. That it makes sense to act courageously and prophetically to side with Christ, to side with the church, to side with the least, to side with the poor, to side with justice when a lot of the other pressures of the world say otherwise. It's our job as theologians to help that make sense to them and not make it an irrational choice, but to make it a rational choice for faith. And I think that's what we can most, that, that's, that's our job. Uh, here's a question about prayer life and the theological life. It says, since the object of theology is the truth, capital T truth, which is the living God and his plan for salvation revealed in Jesus Christ, the theologian is called to deepen his own life of faith and continuously unite his scientific research with prayer. So how do you see your life of prayer and your theological life in relationship? Limping. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if there's anyone who thinks he or she prays, you know, like we ought to mm -hmm. pray. I am constantly reminded by what I read and what I teach that I need to be more devoted in prayer. I'll tell you something that was a very explicit um, experiment in this regard is this past spring I taught a class on God. It, the class was largely the way I taught it. it. We focused on language. How do we, what language do we choose to talk to God and of God? And I very quickly realized as I was putting this class together that I needed to deal with prayer. That questions of, of gendered language, questions of transcendence, questions of apophatic and cataphatic language. None of those things, well, all of those were necessary, but nothing was sufficient, and I needed prayer mm -hmm. as, as part of the class. So I had a unit on prayer, and we discussed prayer from a, um, a bit of a distant view. What, what can we, and how can we make sense of this claim that Christians, that believers in, in God can, can relate to God somehow, can converse with God? We talked about the, the limits of language in prayer, but the need for language. We discussed some art in that regard, too. We talked about John Paul's Roman triptych, his poem about the Sistine Chapel and, and some of that. But, but where it was all ultimately going was I took my students on a retreat. Uh, we used the, the Wheeling Jesuit retreat house in Lands Farm, and I required my students to spend two days, one overnight, undergoing what I referred to as a series of seven or eight prayer experiments where I, I tried to find a, a wide spectrum of ways of praying, encourage them to recognize that no, no one way was going to be sufficient for everybody and that they weren't going to find every prayer experience to be fulfilling. But I was tr 
really trying to push them in on even what they expected, how they would define things like fulfilling. And we went with no other agenda. There, you know, I told them there was nothing they were supposed to feel. There was, there was no nothing that would measure success of this retreat except that they did it. And my preparation for this retreat forced me to think very explicitly about the ways that I understood prayer and theology to be, to to be related in my own experience, how it had been, where I hoped it to go, because I needed to be able to convey that to my students. So it. Um, I find that personally, um, as I've spent more and more time with Ignatian spirituality, because again, I've needed to teach it, so I've focused on it as far as my own prayer experience, that I have grown, I think Howard Gray, Jesuit at Georgetown, talks about three characteristics of Ignatian prayer, of being attention, reverence, and devotion. And I think I have been more, as a result, I've been more attentive to the world and more reverent. I've, I've found more joy in things that I wouldn't have found joy in. I found more hope in things that I that would have derailed me. I've, I've been able to look at both the mundane and real challenges, like real brokenness in the world, and, and been able to see grace. And, and as a result, I think I've been more devoted to God as a result of those things. I, I would say the other challenge that I've had trying to teach my students that has affected my prayer life has been, and this came out in this retreat, we did a little bit of Liturgy of the Hours as one of our experiments, but I've also, we've read some work by Kathleen Norris, uh, Cloister Walk, and we've read some some monastic work in, in various classes of mine, and I've been trying to argue to my students about the importance of of kind of regular structure in prayer life. Hmm. And I talk about the regular structure that they have as far as clubs they belong to, as far as practice, as far as, uh, you know, for sports, as far as study time, that, that they see that this pans out in other aspects of their lives. And so to to have a, a more structured prayer life is something that I am currently working on. Because um, you... Ignatian stuff allows for a profound lack of structure <laughs> and and that's always been very comfortable for me and now yeah. I'm, I'm trying to try to balance those things do you all pray before i mean other than that retreat that you had do you pray with your students before every class i don't and i've given that some thought and i don't i haven't come to any i'm not definitive in either direction i did this god class i did do a final i asked i did a blessing over my students mm. on the last day of class which i had never done in any of my classes before um, it felt fitting in that class. I don't know. I, I haven't, when I taught high school, I taught high school for a year at a Christo Ray network school in Cleveland. We would pray in that class, but I've not prayed regularly with my students here, and I'm not sure why. I was, I read uh, Stanley Harawas's memoir about his youth, but also primarily focused on his, his life as a professor of, of theological ethics. And he came to the conclusion at some point that he needed to pray in his classes. And he would write a prayer every day to fit that class, to fit what was going on. To... And I've thought about the importance of, of having my students lead prayer if they wanted to, as far as giving them um, some sense of ownership, some agency, as far as leadership in their faith communities. I think my biggest reason I haven't is that no one ever did in my classes mm -hmm. when I was a student. And 
it doesn't it doesn't quite feel right. I don't I don't have a good answer. Mm. I, I I would like to be at a point where I could pray in a way that was beneficial to the purpose of the students being in the class. Mm. I think that as I look at my students who are skeptical about a profound number of them skeptical about faith, mm-hmm. skeptical about the fact that I am there to convert them, that it seems more efficacious to not, mm-hmm. but I'm open to being convinced either way on that. This question about the, the balance between a Catholic theologian and the call, therefore, of sharing the Catholic intellectual tradition, uh, and this is a Jesuit school. On the other hand, you sort of mentioned there are atheists here, non-Catholics, uh, and the role as a university professor, right? So the quote is, Never forgetting that he is also a member of the people of God, the theologian must foster respect for them and to be and be committed to offering them a teaching which in no ways does harm to the doctrine of faith. Uh, and actually another quote, this is from John Paul II's uh, Ex Cordia Ecclesiae, talking about the Catholic University. It says, uh, By its very nature, each Catholic university makes an important contribution to the church's work of evangelization. It is a living institutional witness to Christ and his message, so vitally important in cultures marked by secularism or where Christ and his message are still virtually unknown. So you have in both of these quotations a strong articulation of the vocation of the theologian is evangelization and to uh, giving them uh, in no way doing harm to the doctrine of the faith. But as I said a moment ago, this is also a university where there are non-Catholic students here, and you have to, I don't know, for lack of a better word, be fair, right? That that your job is not just evangelizing. Your job, as you mentioned earlier, is not to convert those people. That's why you said you hesitate to uh, pray at the beginning. So you've got these two quotes here about sort of the strong evangelization role of the university and vocation. On the other hand, you've got uni- uh, uh, atheist students at your university. How does that play itself out in your in your teaching? Well, I have yet to run into any sort of big problem for myself in this regard, um, which you know I've had. I, I actually the the biggest pushback I've gotten from students when it comes to personal kind of their faith commitments versus what I'm teaching them has to not is not from atheists or or non Christian students, but it's from Christian students who don't see the faith in the same way as I'm presenting it, mm-hmm. whether that's from non-Catholic Christians for whom kind of the, the Catholic theology that I'm teaching is a little bit odd, or from Catholics who see things in a slightly different way. But I, I, you know what? I think first and foremost, I recognize that my job as a teacher of theology is not to convey information to my students, but to help them to see, again, to to make intelligible the activity of God that's always already present in their own lives. I am, I think it would be a a very inadequate approach to the Ignatian spirituality I try to teach if I talk about finding God in all things, but I don't try to find God in the lives of my students and try to convince them of God's presence in their lives and try to get them to recognize that God is present in their lives in a unique way, a way that only they can discern, that my job is to help them 
to introduce the, to them the rich tradition of the Christian church. And they talk about where, to, to borrow from T.S. Eliot, to, to invite them into places where prayer has been found valid, to invite mm. them into places where people have been able to see God's working in their, in their own lives and to ask my students to go to those places intellectually and to see God in their lives. I don't apologize about my conviction that God is present in each of my students' life. Mm -hmm. I, I don't say that, you know, I don't turn to the students who are on the fence about believing and say, you know, I'm sorry, but I think God's, God's active in your life. But, but I, I try to do so in a way that begins there, that meets them there, and doesn't come with, the, the, with any sort of agenda beyond, first and foremost, them growing in that awareness and giving them the language to make sense of that awareness. So as a result, the way that I would most comfortably evangelize and the way that I am most intellectually comfortable teaching corresponds nicely. Hmm. When students want to get into debates about things, I'm perfectly happy to debate them. And I will talk to them about things, and I will grant the, their points that they make. And, and then I will... You know, I don't... I think a big part of it, too, is I don't feel threatened in my position as a theology professor that, that they're going to... that I need to, in a sense, win every argument I have with them. I don't mm. feel like I need to do that. I, I recognize that, that the the path of faith is a for for some people a long one and one that that has a lot of strange twists and turns i mean it it's i grew up always certainly catholic but but my own faith life has had its ups and downs mm -hmm. and it's had its twists and that each of my students will have something analogous to that and so i don't need to win every argument i don't need to win every battle i need to present the faith with joy i need to present it in a way that makes sense, even if it's trying to make sense about things that don't make sense, trying to make sense about mystery. Mm -hmm. Like I, I need to speak intelligibly and I need to give them some sense of agency that they have a responsibility to begin to ask and answer these questions about how God is working in their own lives. And I figure, as far as evangelizing, that making them aware of God is the best thing that I can do. And that that God and other future people will um, take over where I've left off. The end of Donum Veritatis, it's a short document, but it spends a lot of time talking about descent of the theologian. So here's a quote. It says, As for theologians, by virtue of their own proper charisms, they have the responsibility of participating in the building up of Christ's body in unity and truth. If it happens that they encounter difficulties due to the character of their research, they should seek their solution in trustful dialogue with their pastors in the spirit of truth and charity, which is, to, which is that of the communion of the church. So how do you see the role of theological dissent in the church, especially in light of, and you even mentioned Teilhard earlier, in light of men like Teilhard, Yves Congar, John, uh, John Courtney Murray, as you well know, prior to Vatican II, got into trouble. And then during Vatican II, a lot of their ideas were, were championed. So with that, with those examples in mind, how do you think about the role of of, uh, of dissent in the church? Dissent's a, a tricky area. It's a gray area because you know we mention people like Teilhard and Kangar, and and it's easy to look at people after they've been welcomed back into mm -hmm. the um, the good graces of Holy Mother Church 
and say, well, look, they kept their faith and their ideas were, were championed eventually by, by church leadership. And, you know, you could, I often point out the fact that if, you know, if we, if we think about a theologian who, whose biggest goal is to bring cutting edge science in the conversation with the tradition and one, and one of his major dialogue partners is a, is a Muslim philosopher that most of us would kind of look at that with, with, or most Christians, Catholics might look at that with skepticism. But then when you say, well, no, that's what Thomas Aquinas did. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, yeah, that guy got in trouble too, right? Yeah, exactly. um, and, and so there's, there's a long history of people who, who push those boundaries to um, keep the church thinking, whose ideas were rehabilitated or welcomed in eventually. And then there are a lot who were deemed heretical or deemed problematic, who whose ideas just never got embraced. <laughs> and I think, you know, if, if you are one of those people who are venturing out into potentially problematic areas, it's it's very I mean, I would hope that you would hope <laughs> to be one of those people helping the church grow, that your goal is not to um, undermine the faith, but we don't know where those where these ideas are going to end up. Mm -hmm. um, it's also very easy to claim that you are speaking prophetically sure. when when being disciplined, mm -hmm. yep. and saying people don't understand prophets or prophets always speak truth to power. You want to say, well, you know, it, it's not necessarily the the sign of humility to grant yourself the status of prophet <laughs> and, and, and move forward. So dissent. I guess when it's explicitly dissent from the the truth of the church is problematic. When people are trying to challenge the ways that the that doctrine has been articulated, when people are trying to bring Christian doctrine into conversation with new realizations, new technologies, new ways of seeing things, and the end result is theology that is new, that, that can be very healthy. That, that we need that as a church. Whether it's active dissent or whether it's growth is ultimately the judgment of history. Well, of God, but of <laughs> history, right? The, um, the God of history. Yeah. Uh, so I think we need it. We need people who are going... Because the, the way that doctrine... I mean, doctrine is written by human beings. And the language that we choose is a creation of human beings. And so when we find language or when we find concepts that are either problematic or no longer speak to the way that human beings are, uh, we need to figure out ways to reimagine the truth of the faith so that God is not lost. Because the, the, the phrasing of the doctrine, the phrasing of the theology, is a means to the encounter with God, not an end in itself. And so we need to be able to do that. The politics of it, the... I, I, not yet <laughs> been personally involved with. Uh, <laughs> you know, if that happens, I hope that I will prayerfully and will prayerfully discern what is the best way forward should that happen to me. But but it's it's I guess it doesn't bother me. It doesn't scare me because it's been present since the beginning, mm -hmm. and dissent has been present since Paul and Peter sat down and had to have a conversation. <laughs> Um, rebuke into his face, and and so things had to change. So I I get nervous when people want to 
separate as a result of, of challenges. And I get nervous when people are no longer debating with charity, when it becomes, when we stop losing the recognition that we as members of the body of Christ are in this together and that none of us have the answer. I think as, as intellectuals, we're as theologians, we're prone to err on the side of wanting to trust our own research, <laughs> uh, even in the midst of crippling self, self-doubt. And, and there's, there's a danger of hubris, both on the side of, of an individual theologian who might be dissenting and the, the Christian who happens to be in authority making decisions about that theologian's work. Uh, in conclusion, this podcast likes to ask some five sort of light questions. So you right. take a deep breath here. All right. Number one, are you on team coffee or team tea? I like them both. I used to drink a lot of tea ever since this Irish nun asked me if I cared for a spot of tea when I studied abroad <laughs> and I melted. So I've, I've, I've liked tea, but um, I realized that when I was, what was it? I was starting my dissertation as my first child was born and teaching that I needed something Need something uh, <laughs> something stronger. And as, as I often use the example of the fact that coffee kept me awake was the clearest example of grace perfecting nature <laughs> that I've ever had. Um, and so I'm, I'm currently, I drink coffee daily. Tea is, is usually I'll have like an herbal tea in the evening, but mm-hmm. coffee is my, my go-to now. Of whom or what would you be the patron saint? Patron saint of trying to plod forward amidst crippling self-doubt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, yeah, about trying to uh, fake it till you make it, I guess. What is your favorite or least favorite liturgical song? So, Sing Out the Lord's Glory. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it's called. You want to give us a verse? No. Um, <laughs> but it reminds me of an Andrew Lloyd Webber song. Yeah. It, it, it's like, it seems like it should belong in um, Jesus Christ Superstar. And that bugs me. <laughs> My favorite song, currently it's These Alone Are Enough. The, the Ignatius's Take Lord and Receive All My Liberty, My Memory, My Understanding, My Entire Will. Put to music, hmm. uh, which I've heard at a couple of funerals for Jesuits, and it's it's a very powerful, powerful song. What word or phrase do you think you most overuse? Theologically, or just in general? I mean, in general, it's probably stop doing that to your sister. But uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> theologically, I use the word imagination a lot. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so yeah. I don't know if it's overused because I think it's important, but uh, I use it a lot. What is a job or profession that you would have pursued were you not a theologian? See, I like being a theologian, but if I could do anything that didn't, if, if this were off the... If you could wave a magic wand. If wave, well, if I could wave a magic wand, I'd be doing what I'm doing. Oh, that doesn't count. But if I had to do something other than what I'm doing, mm-hmm. and I had the talent to do it, mm-hmm. I'd want to be a novelist. Novelist. Uh, and I'm actually going to add a sixth one of my own here, my own personal contribution. All right. If you were the Pope... What would your Pope name be? What would my Pope name be? What would your name be? I think it would probably be Augustine. I think I would go with Augustine. Why do you think no? there has been no Augustines? I think it's setting up a really high high bar. (laughs) bar. Well, we got a Francis now. Yeah, but but Francis, I mean, picking a bishop's name, like, I think there's a high bar with that. Okay. Because because the role is similar. I mean, the... Um, but although, you know what, I'm really liking this Pope. And so I might, I, I might choose Francis the second, 
not so much because of Francis of Assisi, who I'm learning a lot more about, mm -hmm. but has never been a big part of my spiritual development, but because of this Pope. So you put them together and be Pope Augustine and Francis? Sure. Pope Augustine Francis I. Well, Pope Augustine Francis I, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Stu. The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo.